Okay, the story begins. <laughs> we are on page 45, starting the Amida. So here's what we're going to do today. We are not going to actually go through the text of the Amida yet, because the Amida is the central, uh, the, the center of prayer, or really the climax in many ways of prayer. Prayer is a ladder. It's a progression. And from the way beginning of the Siddur, we've been working our way to the Amida to experience what the Amida truly is. It requires an introduction. Before we get to the text of the Amida itself, it's important to understand its historical context, its spiritual context, why we say the Amida, what it represents on a very literal level as well as in a more deeper paradigm. Let's take a step back. Who authored the Amida and why? It's a bit of a trick question because it wasn't one person. <laughs> it was um, authored by Ezra and his court, his Beit Din. So let's just go through history real quickly. We'll go through like a thousand years of history <laughs> in like three seconds. Jewish people leave Egypt, right? 50 days later, receive the Torah. 40 years later, they're brought into the land of Israel by Joshua. Several hundred years later, finally, King David conquers the land for the temple in Jerusalem, builds the first temple that lasts for 410 years. It's then unfortunately destroyed by the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews are exiled to Babylon. And at, it's at this point that the story of Purim takes place. And then at the end of 70 years, they go back up and rebuild the second temple. It was toward the beginning of this 70-year exile at the destruction of the first temple that Ezra, together with his rabbinical court, formally penned the Amida. Which means the Amida was authored by prophets. It's an interesting thing. If the Amida, the Amida essentially has the same sacred validity as the book of prophets or writings do. It just hasn't been formally written, uh, you know, with on quill to parchment <laughs> as prophecies have been. It's not, it's technically, it could technically be part of the Bible because it was authored by biblical characters. But it never was formally written down in that way. Why did Ezra write this down? Why did Ezra author the Amida, an institute that all Jews recite the Amida daily, or really three times daily? Where did this come from? So there's a few things. There's a few moving pieces here. Prior to the Amida, let me put it this way, Ezra didn't introduce prayer to Judaism. We don't innovate in Judaism <laughs> because Judaism is tradition. There's a tradition from Sinai. So Ezra didn't innovate anything. They were praying before. But what happened was exile kicks in. You move to a new land, a new country, a new language. They spoke Aramaic in Babylon. And at this point, we don't have the peace of mind to focus and pray when we want or need to. 
nor do we have the linguistic ability. It's at this point in history that Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, is starting to become an academic language. No longer a spoken language um, among the Jewish people in the same way. It's, it's getting to the point where it's starting to become an academic language. The next generation, they're speaking Babylonian. They're speaking Aramaic, not Babylonian. They're speaking Aramaic, which was what they spoke in Babylonian. In Babylon. In Bavil. So now comes time to pray. I don't have the same linguistic, not that prayer needs to be in Hebrew necessarily, but there is something rich about praying in the sacred tongue. There is something rich about having the inspiration to pray. But when you no longer have inspiration because the temples destroyed and were dispersed, you no longer have the linguistic ability to pray. It's very easy to say, eh, I'm good. <laughs> Whatever. It's easy to become complacent. It's easy for it to kind of just... So Ezra said, here's a set text that we're going to have. Biamida. 18 blessings. Even though it's 19. Maybe we'll talk about that soon. A series of blessings that will be recited. And we're going to recite them three times daily. Sometimes four times. On Shabbos and Yom Tov. On Yom Kippur, five times. And every single location, every single community, and every single time and place will recite the same prayer. Prayer will now become timeless and will not be will no longer depend on geography. It was simply easier to pray in the temple when you had more inspiration, where God's presence was there. But now Judaism is no longer defined by geography. Nor is it defined by chronology, yeah, if that's a, if that makes sense. <laughs> this is the time throughout the, from now on until the end of history. This is when we pray. You know what's interesting is I actually just learned this today. These sages, Ezra and his Beit Din, it was a team of 120 rabbis and sages. They didn't actually author the Amida. They compiled the Amida. Many of these blessings were recited um, throughout history, apparently. So they've compiled these blessings and put it together. Now, why three times? Why did they establish to recite it three times? So the Talmud, and Mike, you'll learn this in Tractate Brachas, there's actually two reasons. Reason number one is there's biblical verses that imply that Abraham would pray in the morning. Jacob, sorry, Isaac in the afternoon, Jacob in the evening. And that corresponds to the three prayers, three times that we say the Amida. And also, John, as we were discussing earlier today, prayer is representative of the korbanos, of the of the sacrifices, of the offerings that took place. What does the Hebrew word korban mean? We translate it as sacrifice or offering. But it literally comes from the Hebrew word karov, to come close, to approach. The Amid is when we approach God. There was the korban tamid, the consistent offering every single morning, every single afternoon. And plus the evening. There was no korbanos, there was no offerings in the evening. But mariv represents when they would finish burning the korbanos. Sounds good? Make sense?
it it's it's an interesting thing because in many ways in many ways if if Moses Joshua or any of these prophets would visit our communities despite the amount of time that has gone by the time gap they'd be very comfortable the culture is a little different we dress a little different but the tefillin that we're doing is the same the mezuzah is the same we're making Kiddush Friday night. It's the same. Judaism hasn't changed. Right? The culture did, right? So Ashkenazim like bland kefilta fish and Spartan like spicy Moroccan Fine. But but the 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 essence of Judaism hasn't changed. But there is an exception. At this point, there is a bit of a change in Judaism. Again, nothing has been innovated, God forbid. But in terms of practice, things are being done differently. What we used to do as a service in the temple is now doing being done as an individual or with a minion by the Amida. There's a book called Sefer HaChinuch, the book of education. It was authored in, I'm bad with years, but I'm going to say 800 years ago, a generation or two post Maimonides. In the book Sefer HaChinuch, he compiles each mitzvah in the order that it appears in the Torah and gives ethical explanations for each mitzvah and then like just a basic rundown through each mitzvah. He has like this template. He gives you the biblical source, an ethical or philosophical reason for why we do the mitzvah, whom the mitzvah applies to, when it applies, and some sources you could look up in the Talmud. He does that for each of the 613 mitzvahs. It's called the Sefer Chinuch, the Book of Education. So if you want to know like different reasons or explanations for mitzvahs, it's a very good resource. What's interesting, by the way, is he wrote this book. The author wrote the book anonymously. We don't even know who wrote it. What we do know is that he wrote it for his son as a bar mitzvah gift. He said, you're going to become bar mitzvah. That's why he wrote it. He wasn't trying to be an author. You're going to become bar mitzvah. You got to know the you got to know the mitzvahs. <laughs> so he wrote this book for his son, and there's different theories as to who wrote it. But um, we know when he lived. First of all, he quotes Maimonides uh, very frequently. So, and, and we know that he lived around right after that generation. Why are we talking about the Sefer HaChinuch? Because he, he talks about prayer. It talks about what's the purpose of prayer, and specifically the Amida. What's the purpose of the Amida? In general, as you'll see, Mike, when you're learning Talmud, Brachas, when the Talmud references, or in Halacha, when in Halachic texts, when it references prayer or tefillah ambiguously, it's usually referring exclusively to the Amida. Um, we refer to it as the whole, you know, the whole sitter, the whole package deal, the whole service. The Sefer HaChinuch, the Book of Education, describes the purpose of prayer, the Amida. The structure of the Amida is we praise God with three blessings, and then the middle blessings, and, and then we praise God and thank God with three blessings at the end, and then there's the middle blessings. And those middle blessings are simply asking God for things. What's the significance of this? We're asking God for things. It, it, it's kind of a funny thing. Like, this is the spiritual climax of our prayer journey. Hey, God, uh, can you make sure I get my sustenance for the year and that I stay healthy? That I, it's, it's kind of funny. 
I'm asking God for things, and that's my spiritual climax. It's like a fundraising pitch. <laughs> like, let's go. Let me take you out to lunch, and we'll. Uh, I'll sing your praises. And by the way, <laughs> can I? Uh, can you write a check for? <laughs> the sitter might not be the best fundraising model. So the Sefer Achinuch. I'm paraphrasing the Sefer Achinuch here, but what he says is that it's actually an exercise by which we recognize our dependence on God, our dependence on something greater than ourselves. That's the exercise of the Amidah. We ask for our needs, but the focus is not our needs. The focus is the one whom we need. I'm going to say that again. We ask for our needs, but the focus is not our needs. The focus is connecting to he whom we need. We're trying to internalize our dependence on God, the world's dependence on God. There's a interesting debate, a post-Talmud debate, because the Talmud is very ambiguous about this. Is reciting the Amida a biblical command? Is it one of the 613 commandments? Or is it a rabbinic command? According to all scholars and opinions, there are 613 commandments. But they don't all agree as to what they are. Which is an interesting thing. You know, what, how do you define commandment? Because the Torah doesn't tell you always this is a commandment. So when the Torah says to believe in God, is that a commandment? Many say that's not a commandment. How could you instruct faith? <laughs> Either believe or you don't. You can't really have a choice. So there's a debate whether prayer, whether Amida, reciting the Amida, is of biblical nature or rabbinic. And you'll soon see why this is important. It's actually, ironically, rabbinic nature, which is an interesting thing. Let me take a step back. In general, what is a mitzvah? The Zohar, one of the earliest works in Kabbalah, describes a mitzvah as a limb or an organ. The Torah enumerates 248 organs that one has. Parenthetically speaking, the Shema has 248 letter, uh, words. Letters or words? Probably words. 248 words, yeah. 248 words. There's also 248 positive mitzvahs. There's 248 do's. For those who are doing the daily Tanya cycle, you'll remember from yesterday that we referred to the patriarchs as a divine chariot to God. Because every one of their limbs were incorporated in a mitzvah. 248 mitzvahs, 248 limbs or organs. Full connection. But what is prayer referred to? If it's not one of the 613, and it's not one out of the 248. So what is prayer? What is Amida? What is a tefillah? So the Talmud says that the 18 blessings of the Amida correspond to the 18 joints of the spinal cord. 
or of the vertebrae that, that contain the spinal cord in the back. It's not one of the limbs. The spinal cord, what's unique about the spinal cord? You touch that spinal cord, what happens? God forbid, right? Bad things can happen, paralysis. Because the spinal cord is not a limb. It's the vitality of the limbs. It's the energy. The Amida is not a mitzvah. It's the energy behind the mitzvah. It's the soul of the mitzvahs. A mitzvah is a do, is an action. It's what you do. There's a passion, an energy, a focus, an interest, a love that fuels that. A spirit that fuels that. That's the Amida. That's prayer. And that's why we pray specifically starting in the morning. Before we do any mitzvahs, for the most part, we do the Amida because the Amida is going to fuel the 248 limbs, the positive mitzvahs that we do. And that's why there's such a strong focus on kavanah, intention and focus during tefillah. The Talmud implies that kavanah, this is interesting, kavanah is more necessary by Amida than it is by the Shema in many ways. And the Shema is explicit in the Torah. You know how that's implied? You'll see this in Tractate Brachas, Mike. By the way, you guys, follow Mike's lead because it's really a fun Tractate. You see, so the Talmud says, Talmud has a discussion. Let's say you're uh, an employee and you are, your job is to pick fruits from a tree. Now you're up in the tree, right? It's time to pray. You have a dilemma. If you, you're in a tree, you can't pray in the tree, right? So what do you do? You can't pray properly in the tree. But if you come down, you're wasting your employer's time to come down to pray. You can, to start praying while you're on someone else's clock is a bit of an issue as well. And the same God whom you're praying to doesn't want you to steal. So the Talmud says, if it's for the Shema, say it in the tree. You'll have a little less kavana, but fine. If it's for the Amida, you, you got to come down. You got to come down and you got to focus properly. Implying that the Amida requires more kavana, more intention, more focus than the Shema. And the reason is because the Amida is not a specific mitzvah. It's the soul of mitzvahs. It's the vitality, the energy behind it, the spirit behind it. A person who has a proper Amida, a person who works on their davening, their mitzvah observance is going to be very different. You'll be able to tell the difference. That's why the Rebbe writes in Hayom Yom. John, you'll be able to tell us which Hayom Yom this is. The Rebbe writes in Hayom Yom. Maybe, I, I don't remember. It's somewhere in the summer. Towards the beginning of the summer. The Rebbe writes in Hayom Yom that the beginning of one's spiritual decline starts with slipping in prayer. When our davening starts to get weak, it brings down everything with it. All of a sudden, Judaism becomes burdensome. Do I really want to get up and go to shul? Do I really want to do this? Do I really? It, everything becomes a burden when our prayer goes downhill. When our effort in prayer goes downhill. 
it's the nucleus it's the it's the spinal cord of of the limbs it's not the limbs it's the spinal cord of it it's the vitality behind it how does now, now that sounds nice and cute but practically how does that work <laughs> how am i supposed to get more vitality by reading this text there's two components to the text there's there's a reframe throughout the amida it's really throughout any blessing but it's most in, in the amida here's the reframe baruch ata hashem that's the reframe what does baruch ata hashem mean um let, let's let's look at the text take a look on page 45 even though i said we're not going into the text i guess i wasn't being truthful <laughs> page 45 You see him? Baruch atah Hashem. You're going to see that again and again and again and again and again. Blessed are you. Okay. What does the word blessed mean? What does the word Baruch mean? God needs my blessings? <laughs> why would I want to serve a God who needs my blessings? Like Groucho Mark says, why do I want to be part of a club that wants me as a member? <laughs> so the word blessed... Again, translations are dangerous and limiting. The word Baruch, you know what the word Baruch means? It comes from the word Brecha, which means a channel. The word Baruch means to channel down. What are we channeling down? Ata. What does the word Ata mean? You. That is interesting. We're calling God you. Hey, you. Isn't that a little too casual to talk to the King of Kings? Hey, you. Think about it. In the Amida, we're standing in front of a king. We take three steps back so we can approach the king slowly and take three steps forward. We're standing still. We're clearing ourselves of all distraction. All to say, hey, you. <laughs> when, when I was in school, they there was this value that they tried imparting on us that you wouldn't say to the rabbis, as a kid, you said, the rabbi said, you, you wouldn't call them you. You wouldn't address them in that way. It's it's casual. Yet, God wants us to address him with that, hey, you. That's the relationship we're drawing down here. Baruch, we're creating a channel for you. Not your name. Not how we, not how you identify despite what everybody thinks in 2023, how you identify is not relevant. There's just, I had to go there. I'm sorry. It, it's just, hey, you. Erase that from the record, Mike. No. <laughs> it's just, it's just you. It's just you and me. That's a, it's a very romantic relationship. How am I going to experience you? Not just how I identify you, which is the various names of God. How am I going to experience you? There's many ways I could experience you. And that's the various requests we ask throughout the Amida. I could experience you through your ability to heal. Even when it seems impossible. 
for your ability to sustain, even when it seems impossible, your ability to forgive, even when it seems impossible, all the different themes throughout the Amidah that we say, your ability to impart wisdom, even though it seems impossible. Because God, you are infinite. Your ability to redeem, to gather the dispersed, even when it seems impossible or unlikely. We have the ability to connect to the infinite and to draw that and channel that in. And it's with the humility of realizing our dependence on God, like the Sefer HaChinuch said. We're literally just talking to you. The point isn't the requests. The requests is an opportunity to connect. You know what it, it it's like when... Let, let's say you have you have a couple and they both work full time they both have busy lives kids a lot going on they don't have a lot of time to catch up they don't have a lot of time to really get to know each other as much as they should but they have a 20 minute opportunity to run to the store together they have to buy something there's somebody watching the kids they got to run to the store in a healthy marriage, you'll see that opportunity of running to the store, not focusing on what we should be getting. <laughs> You're focusing on each other, and the store is just the opportunity. It's just the 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 um the context where you're able to connect. So the Amida, the ability for God to change our reality, whether it be heal the sick, feed the needy impart wisdom, redeem all the various blessings. It's an opportunity for us to connect to God. We're just making a date out of it. We're making a date out of our needs. The, the Talmud says, also tractate brachus, the Talmud says, anybody who has a set place for davening, for prayer, Kol hakoveya makom. Anybody who has a makom, a set place for davening, the God of Abraham is going to answer him. You remember that? The God of Abraham is going to answer. There's a lot of significance in having a set place to daven, not moving around. And there's a lot of commentaries that come and define what that means. Does that mean within the shul? There's commentaries that define why that's significant. What's the, what's so unique about a set place? Yishul Chanoach says that set places because the the altar, which prayers like the Korbanos is like the off, offerings, the altar was in a set place. You can't move the altar around. Um, some say it's so you don't get distracted. But I recently read another explanation. This this blew me away. Again, translations are limiting. What does the word place, makom, also mean? Makom. We refer to God as makom. Hamakom, the Makom, the omnipresent. We throughout the Haggadah we call God Hamakom, the place, because He's the place of the world, right? Like when God forbid somebody's sitting shiva, we say Hamakom Yinachem, may the omnipresent, may the Makom comfort you. So anybody who has a set Makom for prayer, if your prayer is centered around the Makom, around God, not around your requests, but around the relationship. God is going to come and answer you. 
The Baal Shem Tov gave an analogy for this. There was once a king who offered everybody in his province the opportunity to ask for one wish. Some people asked for wealth. Some people asked for fame. Some people... And this is an amazing thing because talking to the king alone is, is a big deal. Not everybody has ever seen... There's no media. Not everybody's ever seen what the king even looks like. Um, but you get to talk to the king and you get to ask for whatever you want and get it granted. Amazing. Everybody's asking for different things. Then there's a wise guy and he says, whatever the king can give me is not as valuable as the king himself. So I'd like a conversation with the king. Very mature, very wise. You could give me things. You could give me money, but 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 you're the source of. <laughs> I want you. The king says, "Wow." The king ends up giving him wealth and fame and giving him everything, because this guy was so sincere and appreciated the king himself. So the Baal Shem Tov says that's what prayer is. That's what the Amida is. It's not the things that we're praying for. It's an opportunity to simply just pour our heart out and talk to God. And God will give us health, God willing, and give us wealth, and give us redemption, and give us wisdom, and give us everything we need. But the focus is the relationship, not what we're gaining from the relationship. You never want a marriage to be contingent on what you give and what you get. What you give and what you get is just a means to the relationship, not the definition of the relationship. This is the Amida. Imagine going through this meditation while you approach the Amida. I'm about to simply have a conversation with Atta, Baruch Atta, with you. It's all I want. I just want you. not about the needs. It's not about what I can get. We need to pray for our needs. Don't get me wrong. I'm not sure. But I just want you. I just want to connect with you. Imagine the passion, the fire that we're going to have under us. This is why Ezra established and his court established the Amida during exile. You already had this without prayer in the Beit HaMikdash. You go to the temple, you go to the base of Mikdash, they'd bring the offerings and the Kohanim and the Levim would sing and, and there was an incredible inspiration and God's presence filled the room. You got what you needed, you're good. And now we have a tool with, with to, to create this because we're in the darkness of exile. We have a beacon of light with us that we, with which we can generate this. You know what's interesting about davening, about Amida specifically? Many of the practices and laws and customs of davening, specifically reciting the Amida silently, which we're careful to do, specifically standing with our feet together, which we specifically do, 
You know where we derive this from? From the prophetess Hannah. This is derived from the prophetess Hannah. The power of Jewish women throughout history um, is, is incredible. Our Amida models the way Chana would pray. Who was Chana? When did she live? And why is she so influential on how we daven? I would think that we would model how Abraham would pray, model how Isaac or Jacob would pray, because those are what the three prayers correspond to. No, we choose Chana. Hannah lived prior to the first temple, the first Beit HaMikdash, before the first Beit HaMikdash, before King David conquered the land of Jerusalem and got it ready to build the first Beit HaMikdash. There was the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, that the, the temporary Mishkan that they would carry throughout the desert. This had a permanent home in Shiloh in Israel. Once they got to Israel, it had a permanent home in Shiloh, and it was there for several hundred years until it finally got its full permanent Glory in Jerusalem. Hannah was a lady married to, I believe, to Ailey, who was the priest at the time, the Kohen Gadol at the time. And Hannah had a, I don't know how you say this, a, a co-wife. <laughs> Many men at the time had two wives. Not sure how they were able to hack that. Probably, maybe they weren't, which is why it's not done anymore. But but her husband's other wife had a lot of children, and she had no children. She was in a lot of pain, deep, deep pain. So she goes to the Mishkan. She goes to the tabernacle. And she goes to wherever she's able to get to. And she starts pouring her heart out to God. But the, the mannerisms that she was using were, were foreign to people. Standing quietly with your feet together, uh, mumbling. We're used to this. We're used to this wildness. She's accused of being drunk in the temple. She says, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring my heart out to God. The focus was on pouring her heart out to God. Not so much how she prayed even but more the attitude she had in pouring her heart out to God. We read about this story, by the way, on Rosh Hashanah. Because we remind ourselves the power of prayer on Rosh Hashanah, the power of being influential, the power of the Amida, because it's from her prayers that we learn about the Amida. But here's the power of her prayer. What did she pray for? She prayed for something that made no sense. And it didn't stop her. Because she's talking to God. Baruch Atta. She's channeling God. So even if she's praying for something that made no sense, scientifically, it was not in the cards for her to have a child. It wasn't in the cards. It wasn't in the stars. It wasn't going to happen. She didn't give up. She prayed, by the way, for a righteous child, which spiritually makes no sense. That's going to be the child's decision if he's going to be righteous or not. You raise him right, <laughs> but it'll be his choice. You can't manipulate children to be righteous. It doesn't work. His free choice. 
She ends up having a son who is the prophet Samuel, Shmuel. She prayed for what scientifically didn't make sense, a child. She prayed for what spiritually didn't make sense, a righteous child. She got exactly what she prayed for. It didn't make sense. She didn't let that stop her. Because her focus was not on what makes sense, but she's talking to God. Baruch Atah. She saw her needs as an opportunity to channel God. To develop this intimate, deep prayer, love, passionate connection. This is why post-prayer, as soon as we finish praying, that's an opportune time to study Torah. Again, this prayer is the soul of mitzvahs. So immediately do a mitzvah, and specifically Torah study. It powers and fuels our Torah study. Okay, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.